I just think that men are, men are taught that patriarchy is our path to success and mm. in actuality, patriarchy is what stops us from having success. If we define success as wanting to serve our loved ones and communities and selves. Yeah. Um, which I think at a deeper spiritual level, we all know that's what we want. Sometimes we have to learn the hard way after we do the patriarchal song and dance that getting money or like reputation for being hella quote unquote tough or whatever doesn't serve those things. Um, But eventually we realize that that's what we want and patriarchy is literally the opposite of that. Hey, 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 friends. Welcome to the Naked Podcast. I'm your host, Martisa Williams. In this space, we'll explore a whole range of practices for our individual and collective freedom. My entire life has been spent soaking up practice after modality, after protocol to free my body and soul. Join me in conversations with the world's foremost thought leaders on topics ranging from health to sex to spirituality to justice. So, are you ready to get naked with me? Well, let's talk about it. Hello, ho. It is Thursday again, y'all. Well, if you're listening to this on Thursday, it's Thursday for me again. Um, How are you? It has been an interesting week on my side. I've been thinking a lot about um, white supremacy culture, um, specifically specifically the work of Tema Akun in their white supremacy culture um, article, which I will actually link below because I think it's important for everyone to read, um, which lists out the characteristics of white supremacy culture and now I would really argue which is a silly not silly but like um doesn't really matter it's like tomato tomato but like um I'd argue that these are really characteristics of uh capitalism but capitalism white supremacy and sexism is all so in bed together that it's really hard to pull those things apart but I've been thinking a lot about how white supremacy shows up specifically in relationship to perfectionism and urgency. Um, Because I'm seeing it a lot in my own life in how I relate to people and how people relate to me and the injustice of that, but the kind of disgusting web that we lie in with being a being in a society and being humans that are very much characterized by our means of production and try to figure out like where where does my humanity really lie in a system like that like where can I be a full human that is both imperfect and growing and in a body that cannot even sustain the level of urgency um, that I put on it, that I put on it itself, but then other people also put on it. And so I'm trying to figure that out. Um, And I'm thinking a lot about the mental health of Black people and how within a society like this, and specifically at this time of both revolution and pandemic, where do we get to be like, oh, I just need to process. I just need to sit and be with all of the ways of life. Life has shifted and changed and and spit in our face. Um, and then I'm sitting with uh, Black is King by Beyonce in this incredible movie that she created um, and what it means for us and thinking a lot about what culture means for us in general, like kind of mixing this all together in a soup, like what the way that culture really is the water, like 
culture is really hard to discern because it just is. But what I love about today's guest and his um, organization, Question Culture, even just the name itself is super, super powerful because the point is literally you need to question every day the culture in which we are all sustaining. Specifically white folk, but all people need to be questioning the ways the culture has um, imposed its beliefs on us and question if that's actually right for how we want to live our lives and how we want to bring in this new world. So this is, you know, as always, a great episode and let's, let's get into it. So today's guest was freed from prison in 2018. His name is Richie Reseda, and he is an abolitionist, a feminist, a producer, and organizer. He founded Question Culture, a social impact record label, Success Stories, a transformational feminist program for incarcerated men, chronicled in the CNN documentary, The Feminist on Cell Block Y, and co-founded Initiate Justice, which organizes people directly impacted by mass incarceration to change laws to end it with Taina Vargas Edmond. He works closely with Black Lives Matter, Inspire Justice, and more to transform narratives and upend systems of oppression. Richie is a phenomenal human, but also just does really phenomenal work. And in this episode, we talk about the CNN documentary, The Feminist on Cell Block Why, and I kind of tease it apart and get some questions about it, um, and specifically around, you know, what place feminism has in the prison system and how feminism can be used as a healing modality. Um, we talk about how Richie was working with the others to confront patriarchy um, how objectification and violence go so together, like they're so linked. Um, we talk about police training and their um, how they are literally taught to objectify us as communities. And we talk about how to talk about white people about race or just some tips. Um, and also about how Richie retired from talking to white people about race. Um, then we get into defunding the police and side note, Richie and his label Question Culture just released this incredible project called Defund the Sheriff, and it's on everywhere. Like, it's on Spotify, it's on um, Apple Music, anywhere you stream, but it's really incredible. Vic Mintz is on there, um, and it's like the next, you know, it's like the new summer bop, but specifically from a, like abolitionist standpoint so I highly 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 recommend getting the album downloading it listening to it and supporting his work and um, we talk about healing trauma from the police and then examples of community intervention prison abolition we talk about question culture and then a little bit about you know the clout that comes with being woke these days and how culture has kind of shifted towards that. But it's a great episode, super enlightening, and I know you're going to enjoy it. Hi, Richie. Hi. I'm so, 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 so happy to have you on. It's like such a dream. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Of course. Of course. So we're going to just start off with the question that I ask all my guests, and that's what made you you? That can be anything. Um, I think so many things make us who we are. <laughs> um, if, if I had to name one thing, um, my father, who... Uh, past two months ago um from the time I was very very young spoke to me like an adult mm. from the time I was born he spoke to me like I was an adult um and he would always say if you don't know what I'm saying 
tell me and I'll explain it to you. And when I got to a certain age, he wouldn't explain it to me. He would tell me to go up in the dictionary. <laughs> um, for those of us who are pre-internet out here, um, remember those days? But yeah, I think that my dad just told me, it, by, by talking to me that way since I was a kid, I think that he uh, just, taught, just taught me that I was to be taken seriously. And something about that made me take myself seriously. Yeah, I would want to hang out with the adults and like talk politics when I was like seven instead of like going and playing with my cousins because it was just he just treated me like I was an adult like he was preparing me for um, the the adult world from when I was really young and I think that kind of gave me the opportunity to start thinking about things for myself uh, really young. Yeah, I totally can relate. I have very similar upbringing where there was no kids table. It was always the kids are at the table having the conversations. Um, I think it does a lot to like make us critical learners and critical listeners and critical thinkers. Um, so that's really cool. I mean, it totally makes sense knowing a little bit about your personality and, the, and your work. So it totally makes sense. Um, so I wanted to start off by talking about the feminist on Cell Black Y. So I watched it recently. And I was like, this is just really, really dope. Like thinking about you like kind of going into this space where it's such an unlikely, bell hooks is just an unlikely figure in the prison system. <laughs> Probably shouldn't be. But um, what, like, what were the pieces that kind of got you to being like, all right, I'm gonna teach feminism while I'm here in the prison system? What are those pieces? Um, well, I would say I wasn't teaching it. I was learning it alongside other people. <laughs> yeah. At first I tried to teach it and it, was, it went horribly. <laughs> um, because who am I to teach someone else about their patriarchy instead of just talk about my own? Yeah. Um, in a way that invites other people to be vulnerable about theirs. Um, which is what, but it took years to figure out that that's how we have to do it for it to work. Um, but what led to that, um, when I was 14 and failing out of school, my mentors, Mark Anthony Johnson and Patrice Culler, started training me to be an organizer. Mm. And um, Mark Anthony started taking me to feminist men's groups. And the first feminist text that I ever read was The Will to Change by Bell Hooks. Mm. Um, and then We Real Cool and then All About Love. And that was just my kind of when Mark Anthony and Patrice first kind of started intervening in my downward spiral teenage life, um, it was through the framework of feminism. Um, and what I was really seeking to gain from the world by acting out in patriarchy. Um, so, you know, five years later when I'm in prison, um, that was my go-to place for healing, for understanding myself, for transforming my behavior, for getting back to a version of myself that I felt like could be successful. Um, and I don't just, I don't necessarily mean money successful. I mean like a version of myself that I could be proud of. And, and um, so I just got a lot of healing and freedom out of that. And I had asked my partner at the time if she would send me uh, the books or at first I was at a prison where we couldn't even get books. So she was sending it to me like a chapter at a time. We were reading through all about love together and ended up doing this long lockdown where I read, reread a lot of Bell Hook's work. And I got, I just got a lot of healing out of it. And when I finally transferred to a prison where they had self-help programming and nobody was talking about that. In fact, they were like talking about the opposite. They were like reinforcing patriarchy in these self-help workshops. I was like, yo, this ain't it. We got to, we got to talk about what's really at the heart of the issue. Yeah, I love that. So that was another, it's so funny because you set me right up for my next question, but like this idea that like feminist, feminism and learning, um, unlearning the patriarchy as like a healing act, as like a healing modality, I think is super fascinating. Um, when I was in school studying gender studies, that was like, for me, that's what feminism felt like. It felt like I was unlearning so much of the weight that was on my shoulders. And I'm interested if you can talk more about like how that felt in the space of prison, like with your peers, with the people around you, 
how was it really like a healing modality for you? How it felt in prison, I think, was complicated, it, like emotionally, um, mm-hmm. because I was both healing and unlearning as an individual, but also living in an environment that was super, super violent. Um, I don't know if I can cuss. Um, You're good. Yeah, you can cuss. <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, I was living in an environment that was super violent and yeah. where patriarchy, you know, Bell Hooks talks about, and, and I saw this to be true, how like poor and working class men of color who don't have access to other elements of patriarchy, like money, yeah, yeah. Um, will like over rely on violence to gain patriarchal success. Um, and that's a prison system. Like everything is based on if you're willing to be violent, your whole standing, your day-to-day safety is based on other people's understanding of your willingness to be violent. So to be doing that unlearning and that healing work while also in a place where I was very afraid to live by it and show it mm-hmm. uh, was complicated. And it took a couple of years for me to realize that, oh, I actually can model this out and be okay, even here. I love that. Did you find that as you modeled it, people were kind of reciprocating or was you were you still like hitting a wall with it? Well, yeah, I think I I still hit a wall with it. And I think we're going to we're going to continue to hit a wall with it until patriarchy is no longer the dominant culture. That's what we do. Um, But what I realized was that like somebody wasn't going to punch me in the face if I asked them to like not say something misogynist. Mm, So that like the first time I like actually spoke up, I I had a Sally who was saying like hella misogynist shit. And I was like on my top bed and he was on the bottom bed. So he couldn't see me, but I was like so afraid to say something, but I felt like out of integrity not to say something. And he was just like referring to women as the B word. Like yeah. people often do. Um, and I was just like, yo, like, do you only call women a B word? <laughs> and he, he just clowned me or whatever. Cause he, he's from South central and I'm from the Valley. And if you're not from LA, that probably means nothing to you, but. Oh, I know. I have, I actually was born in LA, so I know a little bit, a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he basically was like, yo, like, shut your valley ass up. (laughs) I'm from the hood and this is how we talk. And and it was like, I felt like kind of embarrassed, but Mm. he punched me in the face. So I was like, oh, okay. Like maybe I can have these conversations and it kind of grew from there. Oh, cool. That's, that's so wild that you're like, so the bare minimum is I'm not getting punched in the face to call out misogyny. And it's good. That's good. <laughs> um, so in the documentary, you say that patriarchy is the biggest hindrance to our success. And I thought that was super profound because I'm thinking like in both spaces, um, for both men and women and all genders, like hate patriarchy in a lot of ways is just stunting our growth in so many ways. Um, I don't know if you have more to say about that, but I found that was like, it hit me when I heard you say it. Um, I just think that men are, men are taught that patriarchy is our path to success and mm. in actuality, patriarchy is what stops us from having success. If we define success as wanting to serve our loved ones and communities and selves. Yeah. Um, which I think at a deeper spiritual level, we all know that's what we want. Sometimes we have to learn the hard way after we do the patriarchal song and dance that getting money or like reputation for being hella quote unquote tough or whatever doesn't serve those things. Right. Um, but eventually we realize that that's what we want. And patriarchy is literally the opposite of that. Like it, it makes us walking zombies. Right, right. I totally agree. Because patriarchy doesn't allow men to have emotions or to share that emotions. It makes you a robot. And then for women, it puts us in a box. It puts everyone in a box. It puts everyone in the box of gender, of the binary and all of that. So I completely agree. It feels like almost all of the systems of oppression are all just like, okay, make yourself as small as possible and as functional for this one goal as possible. Um, And then that 
it's interesting too, because saying feminism as a healing modality really means that I'm going to unlearn the ways that I've been put in a box. I'm going to unlearn the ways that I've been expected to move throughout the world and begin to come back to myself, come back to the truth of who I am. Um, and then the debt that I have to the people in the community around me. So another thought in watching the documentary that I had was this I, this connection you made between objectification and violence. Mm that like patriarchy teaches the objectification of humans, which I would also argue that capitalism does that as well. Um, and, you know, you have to unlearn objectification as in order to like combat the violence. So what, how, what lesson taught, like what taught you that? I mean, was it just bell hooks? You were like, I'm underlining all of this. <laughs> like what exactly like made that connection for you? Cause that was a new connection. Um. Did I say that in the documentary? It's definitely what I believe. I remember <laughs> saying that in the documentary. Um, but either way, I think that I was just really struggling with the way that I was being treated on a day-to-day -day basis mm. and trying to figure out how, like, the world... Like, when you're incarcerated, it does something to you spiritually because you're literally living in a state where like the world at large has decided that you are not worth human treatment. Mm. Like that everybody feels that way. And right. there's, um, and I was trying to just wrap my head around how people could do that. And then I was thinking about the violence that I had committed throughout my life. I remember when I like first really, really started gangbanging, I would like do these mental exercises in my head where I would try to like, imagine um my quote-unquote enemies like dudes from other hoods and practice not seeing them as people mm. a lot of these dudes i grew up with went to middle school with but i would like practice in my head like if i see this fool on the bus i can't hesitate i gotta attack like he's not a person he's an enemy and i had to do that over and over and i know they like train people in the military like that i know they train cops in prisons like that if you even go to volunteer in California prisons, you have to go through this whole like orientation where they do this like thing with you where they train you to wow. think like that. Um, and I was just thinking about how we, I've never hurt anybody who I saw as a person. I never mm -hmm. hurt anybody who I was thinking about their grandmother while I was doing it. You know? Right. Or being cognizant that they have a grand, something about recognizing that somebody has a grandmother. <laughs> And yeah, and that's and that's what you know patriarchy does. I, I to your point, like capitalism and patriarchy, they're they're kind of inextricable at this point. Um, mm -hmm. They weren't always, but that they, they that's what it does. It's, everything is objectifiable. Everything is commodifiable. Everything has its place in the system. Right. Um, yeah, and and. How I came to that, I think just by seeing it over and over, both in my own behavior and the behavior of others. Yeah. That's deep. That's deep that you like had to go through that exercise. Like in order for me to do this, I have to completely, you know, not recognize that you have a grandmother and that you have mm -hmm. a family and all these things. And mm -hmm. I often think, like you said, in order to kind of, um, criminal like i think of just like the criminalization of black folks and brown black and brown bodies in general they have to like we have to be seen as objects we have to be seen as other in order for that to land and it's that shift from other to human that like really begins to change the world and that's wild i did not know that that was like part of a training with police i mean it makes 100 percent like a whole lot of sense but like it's just wild to think that we literally trained in them that we are not humans. Um, That's where all this language comes from, like words like inmate and convict. And like, it's literally a tactic to, to dis disassociate a person from their humanity. Like mm -hmm. it's not a person that's an inmate. Um, right. A lot of prison guards come from the military first and are trained in that enemyizing and dehumanizing of people. And then they go in and they become either street cops or they become prison guards where now 
they've just replaced whatever racist trope that they had before of the quote unquote terrorist or whatever that was their enemy. They have now replaced with us, like right. black and brown folks in the streets or black and brown folks in prisons. And that is how they're able to just so just kill us in the streets, lock us up, beat the shit out of us in jail. Like it's just an, an easy because we are, li- we're Al Qaeda to them. That's like right. how they've been trained to think. Right. Oof. It's crazy too. I'm saying Al Qaeda should be treated like that. Either. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. Because we're abolitionists over here. Um, <laughs> um, it's just crazy to think because I think I, so I grew up in all white school system, all, like an all white private school system. Mm, I'm sorry. All my life. <laughs> you know, it had its good and its bad. It had it both. Um, so I grew up around white folks my entire life. I mean, now I work with white folks. There's only two black people in our, my office. I love my job. They're great people, but that doesn't change the fact that there's only two of us. Oh, what I found is that people that are super removed from, from our communities and the things that we have to deal with, they do not comprehend that the prison guard, that the officer aren't for our safety. Like it literally breaks their brain to think about the folks that have been appointed to keep us safe don't do that for a particular group of us. I sometimes wonder what's the language to use in order to show them and illustrate for them the terror that we experience. And I, I'm using we as in Black folks, but I have had a lot of privilege where I have not had to have those types of experiences. It's just mm. the proximity that I've had to white folks, the educate, like, you know, just the proximity that I've had to white folks that I have not had to deal with that, that type of violence. Thank God. Mm. Um, but I am interested in like kind of languaging that we can use when we're trying to explain the experience. Um. I can speak to what I found to be helpful working with other cis men when talking about patriarchal violence, mm-hmm. um, which it's probably transferable over how to talk to white folks about this, but talking to white people about the oppression of people of color is something that I retired from a couple of years ago. So <laughs> good for you. <laughs> it, it's just something that I just had to commit to not doing anymore. Um, but what what I've, less the language, but the approach, what I've mm-hmm. found helpful, and obviously my gender privilege is what enables me to do this, and, um, is to understand that when I'm t- talking to a cis man about not being patriarchal, I am asking somebody to drop their hands in a fight mm. from their perspective. Mm-hmm. The way they understand patriarchy is what is keeping them alive, is what is going to get them success in life, which is what it, it is literally patriarchy is their way to success. And I'm telling you what you think is saving your life is actually killing you and everyone around you. Mm-hmm. I need to approach that conversation the way that I would approach somebody who is literally about to be in a physical fight and has their hands up. And I'm trying to tell them to put their hands down and the other person will put their hands down as well. And, the, and that, that way, that, that heart space of like, I know you think this is helping you and I'm going to talk to you like you're a scared person, not mm-hmm. like you're my enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's because I'm a cis man that I even have enough like uh, distance from the violence to be able to do that. Right. Um, so I'm not suggesting that everybody of all gender expressions has to be able to do that or they're somehow failing the movement because that's a weird thing we do in the movement where we think about ourselves in that way. Mm-hmm. But um I imagine it's similar for talking to white folks about the police um, because their experience, their lived experience has oftentimes been that the police do keep them safe. Right. Um, right. right. And they live their lived experience and growing up in this culture that criminalizes us and, and treat, you know, stereotypes us in ways that we're violent and superhuman strength and all that. <laughs> shit um (laughs) like they oftentimes believe a lot of those things and don't even know um so yeah that hard space of like understanding i'm telling somebody to give up what they think is keeping them alive um is an important hard space to 
to, I, I find that helpful when working with men specifically and for, for white people who listen to this um, may find that helpful in talking to white folks about the cops. Yeah, I, I totally, I think that that's definitely transferable for sure. Um, so obviously we are in this moment of revolution, which is both painful and beautiful all at the same time. And you are literally on the front lines um, of this work. Can we talk a little bit about what defund the police looks like um, for those who do not even, can't even comprehend? Yeah. Um, defunding the police looks like black and brown communities um, being treated the way that white suburban communities are treated. Yeah. Um, I have family that live in like a middle upper class. Uh, my white family live in like a upper middle class part of the San Fernando Valley. You go there, you don't see cops. What you mm. see are is a community that's so well resourced that people have access to the things that they need. Um, you don't even see a lot of people outside because people have housing and people have cars and, right. and like people just have the things that they need. Um, so in a, to visualize it, that's what defunding the police is. It's mm -hmm. investing in, now it's important to point out, I'm gonna get into the weeds a little bit and then I'll answer it in a simple way. Okay. It's important to point out that those, those places are like that because they have access to private capital. Mm. Colonialism has served those communities for the last 400 years and those people in them. So they've had money handed down. So the private capitalist system has been working for them. But for those of us in communities where we have been, uh, the, the, been used as a resource for capitalism but have not been the recipients of what capitalism brings, we don't have access to that private capital. So we don't have the money required to have private health care or the money required to have generational wealth of building of buying houses and buying capital that we can rent out to other people and make more money, right? The money required for cars, the money required for mental health. We don't have access to those things. So what defund the police is, is in those in those communities where our public dollars go into violence and revenge in the forms of police and prisons, we want to take the public dollars out of that violence and revenge system and put it into the human services system so that we have the things that we need. That's perfect. Perfect. I think people get so, I mean, I was even um, trying to explain defund the police to my mother who is 62. And so I grew up in Detroit. And so for her, she's like, wait, hold on. Like, what does that really look like? What does it mean? You know, can I call the police when I need if something were to go down? Um, and I'm like trying to explain to her, it's about shifting the resource model, literally just saying like, okay, these dollars are moving from here and they're going to here so that we don't even need to have to call the police. Um, I think that's like the key thing that people need to be taking away in this moment. The like defund the police means we don't, we're taking away the need for the police in the first place yeah. because they're not safe for us. Yeah, and I would say that the need for the police was manufactured. Mm. Um, who was I listening to the other day? Was it Angela Davis? Somebody referred to poverty as a manufactured reality. Ooh. Like it's not a natural thing that just happened. Mm. It, was, it was manufactured like by capitalism, right? And the police presence in our neighborhoods, the amount of violence in our neighborhoods is a manufactured reality. Mm. What happens if you take any group of human beings, go into their house right now, take everything they own, mm -hmm. box them out of every opportunity to get their shit back, mm -hmm. and then instead surround their houses with a bunch of cops waiting for them to do something harmful or illegal because you stripped them of everything they had, yeah, you're going to have some arrests pretty quick. Right, right, Because right. human beings need to survive. And human beings act out when we are traumatized. Um, so when we invest in healing instead of revenge, we can we can cut we can end that trauma. We can heal that trauma, mm. and it doesn't need to continue. Um, now that can sound very heady, like for someone like your mom, who's literally like, "What do I need to do when I call when What do I do when I need to call the police when quote unquote something's going down?" 
I think that 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 conversation is a little more complex. One, right, what we have right now is a is a non-solution solution. solution. Mm -hmm. Calling the police appears to be a solution, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. Right. Because one, in our communities, especially in Detroit, police probably aren't going to show up. One. hundred and ten percent. hundred and ten percent. Probably not coming. Right. Yes. Two, if they do come, they're probably going to make something worse. Mm-hmm. However, we feel like they're at least they're doing something. So we're like, at least I can do something. But there's so many examples of what can be done instead. And it depends on the situation. Are we calling the cops because there's some kids selling drugs on the corner? Because in that case, actually, we don't need to call the police. We need to call somebody's mama. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes, yes, or, yes. But if somebody's trying to break into our house, we, we have a serious situation now. Yeah. There's so many answers for what like acute violence responses can look like. I do think that there's space, there's like an important space for a public service to come in when there is active gun violence going down. Like if somebody is doing a fucking shooting in a school, I would like to think that we have people who we can call who can show up and shut that down. But those people who are trained to shut down a school shooting should not also be the people who come when we have a domestic dispute or somebody who's hooked on drugs or even somebody who did something really violent yesterday right. because that situation is now over. So it's mm-hmm. about making sure it doesn't happen again, rather than people who are going to obsess and spend millions of dollars over figuring out exactly what happened yesterday. So we can send you to prison for the perfect amount of time to get a bunch of DAs and politicians elected and make right. companies as much money. Um, the last piece I'll say on that, I'll just give a concrete example, because I, I do really like when people ask, well, what do I do, especially black folks, older black folks? I think it's really important to like answer those questions. We have direct answers for those questions. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think that those. Sometimes I, the movement gets a little shamey mm. and people feel uncomfortable asking those questions like people on our side. Yeah. And I don't think people should, I don't think anybody should feel uncomfortable asking those questions. And I think it's important we can a- answer them. Um, so I'll, I'll give an example of what I mean. A couple of weeks ago, a good friend of mine called me in the middle of the night crying and said, my brother is threatening to kill himself and he has mm-hmm. a gun. And um, I don't know what to do. And I didn't know what to do. So I called my mentor who has been doing community transformative justice crisis intervention for 20 years right and she didn't know what to do and she said call everybody who knows him who he loves who respects and get them over there yeah and keep the brother on the phone with him and just keep him talking and just keep telling him i love you i'm here to support you your life is valuable we got you And this is the way that our communities can circle up and neutralize the situation. The same thing can happen in a domestic violence incident where somebody is being actively violent towards their partner. We can get the community in there. And and we've seen models of this. We've seen models where survivor networks where women were like, yo, your your partner is being consistently abusive. We're all moving into your house. Mm. Meet up all of us and we're not going to let him do you like that. Or we're moving you out of that house. There's yeah. a, an awesome organization in the Bay Area, Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, that does great work around stuff like this, creating safety plans. Because what we really want is to stop the violence that's happening in the moment, transform the person who, the behavior of the person who's doing it so it doesn't happen again, and make sure the person who was harmed is safe and is like recouped as much as possible. The community can actually solve all of those needs in the grand majority of cases without mm. needing to call and paramilitary force in with a bunch of guns to help us do it. Right. And what would it be like if we lived in a world that our education system actually educated us on these transformative justice practices? Like that part, you know, like what would that look like? So then really we have the resources to be like, I can show up in this way for my community. Um, that's beautiful. I love the visioning of that. I love the vision. I can't wait to see more communities actively putting these into practices. Um, here in Rochester, New York, we just um, won getting police out of the school district. So that's really exciting. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we're moving towards some things, but I mean, 
the city of Rochester itself is very, very um, high population of Black and Latina. And so we have, but then outside of us is very, very white. Um, and there's some interesting racial dynamics here, but I'm excited to see what this looks like in practice across the country. So really what we've been talking about is an abolitionist framework. And I feel like for a lot of people, at least I know in my circle, um, are just now learning what the, the modern day abolitionist movement is and means. Um, I've been following you and Patrice um, and all of you amazing LA activists for a little while now. So I feel like I have like a little bit of an understanding prior to this moment, but I'm finding a lot of people in my life are just now learning what defund the police means, what um, the abolitionist movement is, um, and what transformative justice is. Can you give like a quick definition of um, the abolitionist movement and transformative justice? Yeah, um, prison abolition is an investment into communities so that communities are healthy and thriving. And it is a divestment from police and prisons and the violence used to quote unquote, keep communities in check. Um, and the other thing I'll say about prison abolition is prison abolition, the abolitionist movement is one where we seek to make justice about healing instead of justice about revenge. Mm. So beyond the prison police system in our everyday lives, we approach harm and people from the perspective that we are seeking to heal harm rather than punish harm and transform people rather than disappear people. Mm. Love that. Love that. Love that. Um, okay. I want to quickly pivot a little bit into you're a musician <laughs> i want you to talk so that's like a part of you that i don't really know much about i know that you started question culture um you co-founded question culture so i want can you talk a little bit about that and like how music has um how co it coincides with this work for you yeah um i was a i was a musician first in a in a world where capitalism patriarchy didn't play the fucking earth i was just <laughs> um but we're here um yeah i'm a producer i i started making beats when i was 14 and i started this label while i was in prison called question culture um where we make music to make the world better i mean we make music we make clothes we make film um yeah when i was 14 i started organizing i saw that like my homies in the streets we're not coming to the protests and the city council meetings with my homies who are organizing and I couldn't figure out the connection, the, the, the disconnect. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew what connected us was culture. We listened to the same music, we watched the same movies, we smoked the same weed. And I really saw culture as the bridge to get people into the movement. Um, so, you know, a few years later, as I'm sitting in prison, I, I really recommitted my life to that and using my art to do that. So uh, we have two artists signed to Question Culture and we're not recreating this colonial ass structure that the music industry has become. That's a whole other podcast, but <laughs> our, our artists also come on as, part, as partners in the company. So they both own stakes in the company. Um, their names are Indigo Mateo and 88. And uh, yeah, we just try to make dope shit that makes the world better. And then we follow up each major project with an action campaign because um, we organizers and we just felt like yes challenging narratives is important in and of itself and let's take it one step further and, and get in the streets behind this i love that that's amazing that's so cool i wonder like do you see see this as a model that can um begin to shift the the current music model do you think like Meek Mills could start getting on? I don't know why Meek Mills came in my head, but like, do you think that any of the popular like hip hop or any artists right now can get on this wave? Yeah, I think so. And that's what we really seek to do. Um, we're really trying to bring hip hop in first. I mean, we're like really hip hop driven. Hip hop is most 
powerful cultural force in the world. Yeah. Um, and we feel like therefore it's the best tool in the world to deconstruct the culture of the world, which is like patriarchy and capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, but we'd love to bring the industry in on this model. Cause right now the, the music industry is hella predatory off of black and Latinx culture. Um, right. And folks are not given an equity stake in the things they're creating. And, um, you know, these capitalist, like white capitalist companies are putting out a lot of content that's really fucking harmful. Mm -hmm. so we are growing. We're looking to work with bigger companies. Some of that is starting to happen and, and bigger artists. And, you know, our, our vision is that within 10 years, we trying to buy NBC Universal. We're trying to we're trying to live in a world where culture change content is the norm, mm -hmm. um, and like harmful content doesn't exist. So yeah. we're trying to take up as much equity space as we can. Yeah, that would be beautiful. I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways, like being woke and like having woke listening to woke music is much more trendy these days. It feels like. Um, so I think there, there's 100% an opportunity for it. I mean, obviously there's a need, there's a huge need, but I definitely feel like there's an opportunity. There's parts of me that wants to be all um, meh, meh, meh about everyone being like woke these days, you know? But then there's a huge part of me that's like, that's cool to, that this is a, this is a trend, that's important. Um, so that's amazing. That's like super cool to hear. I hope people like continue to support that work and you know you get more and more artists signed under you i don't know anything about the music industry but i think it's super dope <laughs> thank you uh, to a point i feel like it tripped me out when i got out and like quote unquote being woke was a thing and was cool yeah. um and that wokeness had been separated from organizing and action mm. and that it like a clout play to be woke like when I went into prison in 2011, very few people were releasing political music. And then when I got out, it was like, you had to have your music attached to a social cause or it, or it wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. And which has been both dope and uh, not so dope in that, it's dope in that I don't think we would be in this, this moment of uprising if that didn't happen. Yeah, because I just think culturally, like the the language was there. People get it in a different way. Like, it's not that an uprising wouldn't happen, but the fact that it's so abolitionist, the fact that it's so intersectional, like I think really has happened through huge, you know, artists like Beyonce talking about intersectional feminism, right? right. Um, obviously, the work of organizers and who've been doing this forever, um, but yeah, the way that it kind of penetrated the. the larger global culture, I think is attributed to that. The down, or what we need to be careful about is, I think it's important that we are using our art to serve the movement and not the movement to serve our art. Mm. So when you got artists who are like, I'm gonna, you know, do this quote unquote woke thing because it's gonna help me move units or it's gonna help me get views or get followers, that is not it. That's, that's harmful, I think, to the movement. Um, but when you have artists who are like, how can I use my talent and access to move this movement forward? Uh, that's how that's how we get free. I think that's how we win. I love that. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's a huge distinction um, because I think it is profitable. I mean, I think I, so. I work in marketing, and right now, all of the big companies are rushing to be like, how can we say that we're in support of BLM and this current moment, but yet nothing behind doors is changing you know so it comes back to that that distinction of like are you doing it because it's you gonna get canceled if you don't or are you doing it in order to like really be a part of something bigger and greater um i think that's a huge takeaway that all of us can take you know be careful of the instagram fame like be careful of all of the things we'll do for the gram so that's great before we close out here i have a little like rapid fire for you okay you're the first person I'm doing this with, so we'll see how this goes. Um, complete the sentence. Okay. Justice is. 
justice is healing. Mm. Black joy can. Black joy can. Black joy can, period. <laughs> um, the community needs. The community needs to divest ourselves from revenge. Yeah. And the future is. Happening right now. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Awesome. So the last question that I have um, that I ask everyone is what's lighting you up right now? So many things. Um, I think what's lighting me up right now more than anything is that my like 90 year old grandmother knows what abolition is. Um, I mean, I've been talking to her about it for 14 years, but the fact that my little brother, who's like, I love him to death. He's like a college bro and has been apolitical his whole life, is like reposting Charlene Carruthers. Like just the fact that abolition is mainstream conversation is mm-hmm. probably the most exciting thing I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah, I completely agree. Completely agree. Definitely lighting me up as well. Well, where can people find you? Um, how can people get involved with the work that you do? Um, People can follow me on all platforms at Richie Reseda. Um, Question Culture, which is a production company we talked about, is at question.culture or just questionculture.com. And Success Stories, the program um, where we're doing toxic masculinity work inside, uh, can be found at Prison Feminism. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome. So, what did you learn from the episode? What are you going to go share? What changed your perspective? Because really that's what we're here for, right? Is to change our perspectives. So grateful for Richie coming on. And we did this interview in the middle of kind of all that was happening in LA and around the country with the death of George Floyd. And so I'm just really grateful for him to take that time out of his day to come and talk to me. And it was a great, great, great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I really hope you go and check out the new album, Defund the Sheriff. Um, Like I said earlier, it's everywhere that you get your music. And um, I think this is the type of this is the type of culture that we want to be um, uplifting. This is the type of art that we want to be uplifting. These are the artists that we want to be supporting. So um, please, please do that. Um, and continue to support this podcast, continue to share, continue to review. It means the world. And it really means the world to me when you all DM me, email me, reach out and be like, hey, this thing, it's like rocking my socks. So like, I'm so, I'm really grateful for you all. As always, have an incredible week. I'll talk to you later.